We'll get started. Um, I've asked Andrew Mueller if he could open with a prayer. Thank you. Okay. My name is Tim Munther. This is the Forum on Evangelism, obviously. Um, it's the format is I'm just going to present for about 40 to 45 minutes, hopefully no longer than that. Um, and then I'll just open it up for questions and answers and just a discussion and, or even testimonies of opportunities that you have had to evangelize or maybe some struggles or, or, or whatever. Um, just some discussion at the end. So hopefully some of the content that I present, that I've studied, um, will spur some questions in your mind. Um, but before I get into the presentation, I just want to reiterate the two main goals, and that is namely to encourage us. I guess it might have sounded like a guilt trip um, this morning with what I was saying. I don't want to give a guilt trip. I want to encourage, and I want to help better equip believers to evangelize to anyone and everyone. James 4.17 says, To him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. I mentioned this morning that we're not all evangelists. We don't all have the gift of evangelism, but we're all called to evangelize. And not to do so is sin. That's disobedience. And, um, yeah, but I don't want to discourage people. I don't want to give a guilt trip. I want you to come away encouraged. We... We all know friends, co-workers, acquaintances, um, family members, relatives that are sinners. And we have a moral obligation as Christians, as believers, to share with them verbally the gospel. And I say all this to myself first. I recognize and acknowledge my disobedience to the Great Commission. Um, there are countless times where I know I've been prompted by the Holy Spirit to speak to someone about the gospel and out of disobedience, out of not wanting to make the situation uncomfortable or whatever reason, have disobeyed his leading. And so I say all this to myself first. And so some of it might be fairly blunt, but whatever. I say it to myself first. Um, so I don't want anyone to come away discouraged. Rather, I want everyone to come away with a deep love for God and a deep love for the sinner, a deep love for your fellow man. Recognizing that thousands of people... Thousands of sinners are dying every day, being swallowed by death, and have an eternity of condemnation to endure. And so I want to encourage you to that, to that end, to share your faith, and also maybe to equip you to better communicate that message. So with that, we'll get into the presentation. Um, just a brief outline, sort of more the, the theory, the theology, as to what is the gospel, what is not the gospel, what's evangelizing, what is not. Why should we? Um, and then more of a practical outworking of how we should do that. So what is the gospel? This might be foundational and that we all are familiar with, we all know, but I just want to lay that foundation so we're all in the I guess, same playing field and contrast what the gospel is and what, it not, what it's not. 
So gospel essentially is the good news, and I would very, um, I guess, tersely describe it as there's a remedy to sin and the consequences thereof, but that's not so much in the biblical context. So more specifically, mankind has true moral guilt before God because of his sin, where sin is defined as lawlessness or transgression of the law. Because of his sin, man justly deserves God's wrath, which shall be poured out on sinners for eternity. However, God, being rich in mercy, chose to redeem sinners to himself through his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a perfect life, satisfying the righteous requirements of the law. He was crucified in payment for the penalty of sins and resurrected three days later, establishing victory over death. Sinners have the opportunity to be saved from hell and inherit eternal life by repenting and believing in Jesus as their God and Savior. And all this is ultimately for the glory of God. I think we all can agree with that. It's a, a pretty decent synopsis of what the go- or summary of what the gospel is. However, I want to briefly describe what the gospel is not, because I think we fall prey to maybe communicating these sort of half-truth gospels, what I would deem as false gospels. And a definitely contemporary Christianity today is, um, I guess, thriving on this kind of presentation of the gospel. The gospel is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Are you feeling lonely and depressed? God will give you peace and happiness. God is forgiving and merciful. He wants to bless you and give you wealth, health, and prosperity. I'm sure someone, some name comes to mind when we think of that. Um, come be a member of our church and find belonging and comfort. The gospel is not Christ will forgive only your past sins, but you better be good after that or there's literally hell to pay. Now, some of these are valid byproducts of the gospel, right? Some of these are, are valid statements. God does love you. God is forgiving and merciful. Um, when you believe in the gospel, you do receive peace. You have peace with God. You're no longer enmity with God. Um, there is an element of happiness, rather a joy that you know you have eternal life. However, this kind of presentation of the gospel generally produces nothing but thorny or stony ground confessions of faith. The idea is that people come to Jesus for every reason but salvation from the wrath to come. People want to try to see if this Jesus will give them what they want now, this idea of instant gratification. They're going to Jesus for a wonderful plan for their life, for peace, for happiness, for, for wealth or health or, or, or some of these temporal, mundane things that, that are a valid byproduct of the gospel. Some of them are, but but are not the central issue of the gospel. Essentially, people want to come to Jesus for every reason, and they do not want to acknowledge their absolute depravity before God as their almighty judge and grab hold of Jesus as their Lord and Savior despite what happens in this life because their eyes are fixed on eternity. So, the reason I state what the gospel is not is... um. Because I, mean, I have a tendency sometimes to present the gospel this way. Because it's easier to talk of blessing rather than cursing. It's easier to talk about heaven rather than hell. It's easier to talk about God as loving and merciful rather than angry with mankind and that his judgment is coming. Um, with this kind of presentation of the gospel, people think they'll get more people saved because they lure them in with this sort of half-truth gospel. But the idea is that it's false. Um, these, these four top ones sort of, I would say they essentially appeal to the more liberal mind. 
by, by um, using these peripheral blessings of the gospel. Whereas this last one appeals more to the legalistic mind, trying to tie in man's works, man's merit, as, a, as part of the equation of salvation. Both are false, and both rob God of the glory that's due to him. So what is evangelizing? I guess quite obviously it's sharing the true gospel message. And I highlight verbally, and we're going to discuss that a little bit more, or I'll, I'll elaborate more on that. Um, I also want to contrast that with what the gospel, or what evangelizing is not. Evangelizing is not trying to reform a sinner's behavior to match that prescribed in the Bible. The concept here is that you don't tell a sinner to stop sinning. Why? Because he can't. A sinner has no ability to, to stop sinning because they live in sin, they live for sin, they're in bondage to sin, right? The Bible makes this very clear. Romans 6, Romans 3. Now this is not mean to say that we don't preach repentance. John the Baptist preached that. Jesus did. Peter, Paul did. And if you remember, I include that in my original definition of what the gospel is. We preach repentance. But the concept here is that if we seek to merely reform a sinner's behavior, all you get is a hypocrite. All you get is reformation. Without the regeneration, which is wrought by the Holy Spirit, you don't have a true believer. And sometimes it's easier, oops, sometimes it seems to be easier to just point out sin and say, hey, stop doing that, and just try to reform the person's behavior rather than actually get to the heart issue. Evangelism not sharing the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And evangelizing is not solely living a moral life, hoping that someone will eventually say to you, hey, you smile all the time, or there's something different about you. Or, you know, like, what is it? I, I really want to know. The concept here is that we need to be living lives of integrity. We need to be living lives that are in line with what the Bible prescribes as a Christian life. However, that's to give countenance. That's to support the verbal message that we share, not to replace it. And it's, we need to be doing good things. We need to be serving others. But without the verbal message of actually communicating with words the gospel, um, I would say almost what good does that do? I'm not discounting that, that that can't lead to something like, hey, I notice that you're different. But what I'm saying is that that doesn't replace our responsibility to verbally share the gospel. So why should we evangelize? For me, it always does well to think of, on these things um, because it's easier for, for my fears and my justifications and my rationalizations to dissuade me from presenting the gospel or evangelizing. Um, first, we're commanded to, but I think these are some other concepts that, that would help in, our, in motivating us to evangelize. Death is real. And... It's a very uncomfortable thing to think about sometimes because we don't like to think about death. I remember Andrew and I, we had an opportunity to um, witness to, when we were in high school together, to a, a couple girls that sat next to us and we were talking about death. And she was sort of like plugging her ears and didn't want to hear anything about death. Like, oh, don't talk about that because that makes me uncomfortable. But for the Christian, it does good for the sinner as well as the Christian to meditate on death because of the fact of the matter is that 10 out of 10 people die. Um, Psalm 89.48 says, What man, and I have a, a verse to back it up. <laughs> what, 
What man is he that liveth and shall not see death? Shall he deliver his soul from the hand of the grave? I guess when we think about the reality of death, and we think about the brevity and the frailty of life, like James uh, 4.14 says, What is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Doesn't that just seem to heighten the precedence, is that the right word, or the priority of doing things that have eternal value in our lives? God's wrath and judgment are real. Along with the contemporary gospel is this concept that God, for some reason, is smiling on mankind, or that God just simply wants to bless you beyond all telling. <laughs> it is a quote that, whatever, okay. okay. Um, the fact of the matter is that God is not happy with man. Romans, Romans uh, 2.5 says, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Or Matthew 3.12 Whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the gardener but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. God is not pleased with mankind. He is... He is storing up wrath that will be poured out in the sons of disobedience. God's judgment is real. Hebrews 9.27 says man is appointed once to die and then the judgment. It is coming. And it, we don't like to think about it, but the fact of the matter is that it is coming. Acts 17.31, this is when Paul is preaching to the Athenians on Mars Hill. Because he, hath appointed, because he, God, hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Hell is real. I forgot who said it. I was looking for the quote, but someone said, I keep heaven and hell, it was a Christian, some evangelist guy, I keep heaven and hell in view. And the concept was that he has his eyes fixed on eternal life, you know, with God in heaven, and just the amazing thing that that's going to be when his life comes to an end here on earth. But he also keeps hell in view because that keeps a fresh perspective of what God saved him from and also a burden, a compassion for those other sinners who are destined to that place. I want to do a quick exercise. Whatever helps your imagination, close your eyes, keep them open, whatever. But I want you to meditate on the absolute horror hell will be for those who will die in their sins. Think about words the Bible uses to depict such a place. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. A fiery furnace. Outer darkness. A place of torment. Where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. This worm idea is a continual decaying, a continual eating of the decaying flesh that is always being consumed and eternally decaying. Think about those who are still sinners that are close to you in this place of torment forever. And when I think about that and seriously meditate on maybe five, ten seconds, sometimes tears well up in my eyes. I mean, just meditate on that for just another second. And for me, I'm more concerned about waking up early in the morning to go surfing rather than be on my knees in prayer for someone's salvation or someone else with the, never any mentioning of Facebook and other such things, of, of whatever takes up your time. You know, and, and, and 
just I, I'm, to me, it's a very sobering concept. And these aren't—I mean, these are biblical principles. These are things that we find in the Bible. We tend to gloss over them because we don't necessarily like them, but they're there. I think when meditating on some of these facts, I would hope it would develop into a passion like Joseph Allen here. But when shall I fetch my arguments, or how shall I choose my words? Lord, wherewith shall I woo them? Wherewith shall I win them? Oh, that I could but tell. I would write unto them in tears. I would weep out every argument. I would empty my veins for ink. I would petition them on my knees. Verily, were I able, I would. Oh, how thankful should I be if they would be prevailed with to repent and turn. That's compassion for the lost. This is a super convicting quote. Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you're not saved yourself. Be sure of that. And I wholeheartedly agree with Spurgeon on this point. If you have any concept of what God saved you from and what he has given you, and you don't desire that for somebody else, then I would say your heart of stone that's in rebellion to God is probably still present with you and that it hasn't been replaced with the heart of flesh. How can, you, how can you speak of love and compassion in this God that you serve when you really don't speak of it to other people who are destined to hell? Um, I want to move into more of, of what do we say when evangelizing and sort of the, the principles behind that and then into the more of the practical outworking of how we can better communicate that. We're generally witnessing the two kinds of people, the proud of heart and the humble of heart. And essentially, the proud of heart are those that relatively think of themselves as, as, as good people. They don't see their need for a savior. They don't see themselves as that bad. If there is a heaven, they'll make it there because they're good enough. They're not Hitler, as the, as the example is always used in comparison. The humble of heart are those that have a contrition. They, have an acknowledge, they acknowledge that there's sinners. Um, they may or may not acknowledge that they have sinned against God per se, but there's a contrition there. They recognize that they're not good. They recognize that there is this, true, this idea of true moral guilt. And just one thing about the proud of heart, these people may consider themselves not good people either, but they don't show any, they put on this front like they're not worried about hell or, or if there is one, you know, I couldn't care less, I'll be in good company because all my friends will be there. The main biblical principle that, I, that has tremendously helped me in evangelizing and what I think the Bible prescribes is this. We share the law to the proud and grace to the humble. And we're gonna, I'm going to elaborate on this too. So generally people fall into the category of being proud of heart because that's humanity. And because we humans aren't in the business of reading men's hearts, that's God's business, I would say it's probably a safe bet to start with the fact that people are proud of heart. And that doesn't mean you come up to them and condemn them and judge them and all sorts of things. This is a very sensitive thing of bringing God's law um, before them, and, and we'll talk about that more. But the concept here is if someone is proud of heart, thinking that they're good enough on their own, that they're going to make it to heaven, and you present the good news to them, I mean... What's the good news? Why is, it, why is it good? Why do they need a Savior? Why would, they, why would someone run to the Savior when they have no clue what the Savior is saving them from? The law brings the awareness of sin and the need for the Savior, and that's why the law is preached to the proud. The law silences the mouth and leaves the world guilty. It brings the knowledge of sin. 
It is our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law is useful in that we expose the sin of those who do evil, where sin is lawlessness. And in addition here, the concept of using the law for the proud of heart is that we address the person's conscience rather than their intellect. And this is a big thing for me because I'm sort of a rational guy. I'm an engineer. I like to think of things in very logical fashions. And I always felt that it was my need to convince the person first philosophically that God exists. Whatever argument I would use, I need to start with that. And then I'd move into the Bible and try to historically prove that. And after we have that basis, now we can go to the scriptures and talk about these ideas of sin and salvation and whatever. But when addressing the person's conscience, we address this concept of right and wrong that every human being has. We've been created in the image of God, and there is an awareness of right and wrong. Another thing is that by addressing the conscience, we avoid a lot of this sort of circuitous jabber of philosophical argumentation that I felt the need to convince the person of so much. Oftentimes, um, these arguments of evolution and philosophy don't really come up when we talk about the law and morality because we have an advocate, the Holy Spirit, working behind the scenes, flying in formation with the presentation of the gospel, convicting the person of sin. And so, I mean, I've seen it before. Just when, 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 when you bring up the law, and someone admits to breaking it of specific areas, I mean, the law silences the mouth. It leaves them guilty. And these, these um, intellectual arguments, which are sort of removed from the heart, aren't of much meaning anymore. It's a quote by George Whitfield. He was, uh, I think it was the first Great Awakening, one of the, one of the big uh, evangelists then. That is the reason we have so many mushroom converts, so many mushroom converts, so many persons that are always happy, 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 and never were miserable. Why? Because their stony ground is not plowed up. They have not got a conviction of the law. They are stony ground hearers. They hear the word with joy, and in a time of temptation, which will soon come after a seeming or real conversion, they fall away. Um, this is a, an analogy which I think depicts the presentation of the gospel, and also the motive for why someone would come to Christ. This is taken from Hell's Best Kept Secret by Ray Comfort. Um, And I just want to quickly read it. Two men are seated in a plane. A flight attendant gives the first man a parachute and instructs him to put it on because it will improve his flight. Not understanding how a parachute could possibly improve his flight, the first passenger is a little skeptical. Finally, he decides to see if the claim is true. After strapping on the parachute, he notices its burdensome weight, and he has difficulty sitting upright. Consoling himself with the promise of a better flight, our first passenger decides to give it a little time. Because he's the only one wearing a parachute, some of the other passengers begin smirking at him, which only adds to his humiliation. Unable to stand it any longer, our friend slumps in a seat and straps the parachute and throws it to the floor. As far as he is concerned, he was told a lie. Another flight attendant gives a second man a parachute, but listen to her instructions. She tells him to put it on because at any moment he will be jumping out of the plane at 25,000 feet. Our second passenger gratefully straps on the parachute. He doesn't notice its weight upon his shoulders or that he can't sit upright. 
his mind is consumed with the thought of what would happen if he jumped without it. And I want to con- continue um, Ray Comfort's um, quote or, or analogy here. Just in regards to the first man, we'll address the second man a little later. The first man's motive for putting on the parachute was solely to improve his flight. As a result, he was humiliated by the passengers, disillusioned by an unkept promise, and embittered against the flight attendant who gave it to him. As far as he is concerned, he will never put on one of those things, one of those things on his back again. Now listen to what the contemporary gospel message says. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He will give you love, joy, peace, and fulfillment. In other words, he will improve your flight. In an experimental fashion, the sinner puts on the Savior to see if these claims are so. What does he get? Temptation, tribulation, and persecution. The passengers mock his decision. So what does he do? He takes off the Lord Jesus. He's offended for the word's sake. He is disillusioned and embittered, and quite rightly so. He was promised peace, joy, and fulfillment, and all he got were trials and humiliation. His bitterness is directed at those who gave him the good news. His latter end is worse than the first, another inoculated, bitter backslider. This is what happens when the ground of the sinner's heart is not properly tilled with the plowhead of God's law. And this is why there's so many people, especially in North America, that say, yeah, I'm a Christian, and they have no clue what Christianity is about. I want to quickly uh, just describe some of these passages where the law is used. The rich young ruler, it was, it was brought up last night. Um, this rich young ruler comes to Jesus, he says, good master, what should I do to inherit eternal life, right? Jesus questions his concept of goodness right there. He says, why do you call me good? Only one is good, and that's the Father. And then Jesus shows, I would say, Jesus being able to read his heart, knows that he's proud of heart, and says, have you kept the commandments? And this guy think, thinks he's pretty good, and says, yeah, I've kept them all. And then what does Jesus say? He says, go and sell all that you have, take up your cross and follow me. In other words, Jesus was saying, look, your God is money. You've broken the first two commandments and probably the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. And he went away sad because he was very rich, because mammon was his God. If someone comes up to you and says, Timothy, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I'll say, yeah, just believe in Jesus and, and, and you're good to go, right? But no, if, if, if that was it, this rich young ruler would probably have no concept of why he would be really coming to Jesus, why he really would want eternal life. He was seeking to justify himself. And Jesus, or his presentation of the law pretty much stopped him in his tracks. Paul speaking to Felix. Felix doesn't like what Paul has to say. He says, go away and come back when, when there's a more convenient time. And the Bible says that Paul was, was reasoning, of righteous, reasoning with Felix of righteousness, temperance, or self-control in the judgment to come. Does that sound like Paul was evangelizing to him in terms of what we would think of evangelizing nowadays? D.L. Moody said the law can only chase a man to Calvary no further. Again, the concept is that the sinner needs to know the disease, sin, in order to want the cure, the good news, the gospel. And this is the, the cool thing, is, is we think, I'll just read it. <laughs> this is what makes God's grace so amazing. The idea is that you're upholding God's standard of perfection. You're showing how exceedingly sinful sin is in God's sight, how much he abhors sin, how much wrath is being stored up for judgment day. But the fact of the matter is that God 
has provided a remedy to sin and the consequences thereof through, De- through Jesus Christ. And that magnifies not only God's justice because we uphold his standard, but it magnifies his amazing grace because we see in light of that amazing standard and the fact that he's good and just, he would go to these great lengths to enable a way for sinners to come to him. So with this backdrop, this, this law, this, it makes sense to share the good news. And so the second passenger um, on the plane to examine his motives um, as to why he put on the parachute, which is Jesus Christ. So we, we see an entirely different motive for putting on the parachute, namely to survive the 25,000-foot jump. Analogous to the flight attendant's instructions to the second passenger, God's law instructs a sinner that God's wrath abides on him and that there is a judgment day coming. He then recognizes his guilt before God. This fear of God is biblical. It will drive him to seek God's remedy. This is not fire and brimstone type preaching. I'm not endorsing that. I'm not saying like cry or fry, turn or burn. Like we we might hear some people do. I I went to school at OSU and you have these oval preachers. And some of them are like that. They have signs, picket signs that say all homos go to hell. That's not what I'm endorsing here by any means. So I hope no one gets that concept. The fear of God is healthy. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus says, don't fear him who can destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy the body and the soul in hell. This is a healthy fear because it drives us to acknowledge who we are before God and to seek God's remedy for it. This passenger humbly clings to Jesus as his Lord and Savior and is overwhelmingly grateful for the grace he has received. Temptations and trials he will encounter pale in comparison to facing God on Judgment Day without forgiveness and the righteousness of Christ. His eyes are fixed on eternity or the 25,000 foot jump that's to come. So, I spent too much time on that. That's more the, 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 the theology behind, I guess, to me, it revolutionized my idea of what I need to be communicating to, to sinners. And so here, after the presentation of the law, or at least an exposure to, to God's standard, it makes sense to express um, grace and the fact that Jesus died on the cross. And we need to be memorizing certain verses like these. I'm sure most of us have verses like these memorized where they tell a sinner how they can be saved and they magnify God's grace. So how to evangelize. First of all, our motive must be a sincere care and love for the sinner. That they would be saved and that God would be glorified. More often than not, people won't care what you have to say to them if you don't care for them. And they can sense that. If, all your, if your evangelism is checking off your, your deed for the good day, whatever, it's the wrong motive. We need to pray for opportunities. After Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman um, at the well, he said to his disciples, lift up your eyes and look in the fields, for they are white already to harvest. The opportunities that are out there, we just need to take a big step out of our comfort zone and, and claim those opportunities. Now, this is by no means a formula, but a framework that I like to keep in the back of my mind. Um, The acronym is WDJD, similar to WWJD, except WDJD. (laughs) It's coined by Ray Comfort, and uh, the idea is that each of the letters um, highlight sort of a progression, sort of a logical progression of, of of the presentation of the law. 
first, trying to see whether or not this person you're speaking to is proud of heart or humble. Would you consider yourself a good person? Generally, people say, yeah, I'm pretty good, because they think of someone who's worse than them. Why would anyone think of themselves as being bad? So they answer yes to this question. If they say no, then you can ask them why and explore that route. But generally, people say yes, and then you can say, do you, kept, do you think you've kept the Ten Commandments? And again, I'm not saying you need to literally say this, but just this concept. Here, we're using the law to expose sin, to bring the sinners, to bring the sinner um, to an understanding of his sin and of his guilt before God. I'm sorry. One second. Yeah. With this, this is a very key to keep in mind um, that when we present the gospel, or not the gospel, but present the, the God's law, that we don't present ourselves as these perfect Christians who are so far removed from sin and sinners, because that's not the case. And I would think that you need to ask God to examine your heart if you think that is the case. We need to remember the filth that God saved us from. And according to everyone's works, we all stand guilty before God, Christian or non-Christian. It's because of Christ's imputed righteousness that we stand justified before God. And so when asking someone, have you ever lied before? Have you ever lusted? Have you ever coveted? Have you ever dishonored your parents? Um, You can include yourself in that because you have done that. And you are condemned because of that. And that helps make the message a little bit more palatable because you're included in that. You're not preaching at them. And so, when exposing them to the concept of, have you ever lied before? What does that make you? And they say, I guess I'm a liar. I've broken God's law. I've transgressed his his moral code. Well, when he judges you by that standard, are you going to be innocent or guilty? And if they're in their right mind, they'll probably say, I guess, if, they judge, if he judges me by that standard, I'll be guilty. So based on that, do you think God's going to, or do you think you're going to go to heaven or hell? And ironically, so many people still say heaven because they say, God is good and he'll overlook my sin. And don't realize that the fact that God is good is that, or realize because God is good, he will see that justice is administered. And the very thing that they think is going to save them is actually going to condemn them in the end. God is good, and as a good judge, he will see that justice gets administered. If they say hell, that opens a perfect door to say, does that concern you? Would you like to hear about the good news of what God did for you? So, that's a framework that I like to keep in mind, and hopefully that helps you to hit on these principles that I think we should be sharing um, when evangelizing others. I want to talk about first maybe just some tips as to how we could evangelize to the stranger and then move into those that we have more of a relationship with, our acquaintances, our friends, our coworkers, our family members, relatives. So the stranger. And I realize not everyone is so bold to, to go up to a stranger and t- start talking to them, but you don't get better without practice. Start a friendly conversation talking about whatever, the weather, sports, um, just whatever, and, and see you know, test the waters, see what they're like, what their personality is like. 
and then use something that might make sense in the situation to allude to something spiritual. I remember I was um, skateboarding by one day, and I came across a group of skateboarders. They were skateboarding a set of stairs, and one of the kids was videotaping. I'm like, oh, I'll stop by and see what's going on. They obviously knew I skateboarded because I had a skateboard with me. And I started talking with some of the kids, and I noticed he had a necklace with a little cross on it. So I'm like, huh, oh, I'll always ask about it. And I brought that up, and he said, yeah, I'm a Christian. And after probably two questions, I realized that this kid has no idea what he's talking about. He doesn't believe in God, nor does he even think that Christ existed. I'm like, and I'm like, what's the root word of Christian? So that was, that was interesting. But nevertheless, you know, I, I used something that made sense. It, it wasn't, it wasn't like, hey, I like the skateboard. I, I, that's cool. You guys are videotaping. Do you know Jesus Christ? It made sense. It was, a, it was a logical flow. And we need to be praying for God to give us insight to pick up on these little things that can maybe help us turn the conversation from the mundane to the spiritual. That's a difficult thing. It's, it's like, this is the framework, right? But how do you get into the spiritual conversation? Well, we need to practice and we need to be aware of certain things around us and, and ask God to to bring those things to mind that can maybe transition the, the conversation to that. Or this is a little bit more of a blunt way, but you could ask them if you would mind. You can ask them if they would mind if you ask them a question. Um, I've used this before. I've uh, actually had a really awesome conversation with, the, with the, like three other guys. Um, I asked them in regards to what they thought about um, a line that Jesus said. Jesus has these awesome, like, thought-provoking one-liners, such as Mark 8.36, For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? Like, to me, it's like, hmm, that's pretty cool. Let me think about that. Like, that's a sort of a non-offensive way of saying, like, what do you think about this concept of, you know, just getting more money and, and, and climbing the corporate ladder or whatever, and then, you know, you die. You forfeit your own soul or something like that. I don't know. It's, I think it's a good transition. Or Matthew ten thirty nine, He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. Sort of a paradoxical you know, statement. Or you can simply ask, would you consider yourself to be a good person? And then go from there. Using your own testimony. I think we've, we've done this before. It's a very non-offensive way um, of testifying of the change in your life. Or use a gospel track. And uh, I have, uh, some people don't like gospel tracks, and some may even think that they're wrong to use. But I have heard the testimony of, of, of others who have come to Christ based upon the written word on a gospel track. And I guess I would say I personally don't care what you think, but. <laughs> I would say never discourage anyone from using a gospel track because you think it's wrong to use it or it's not the right approach. I would say better for the timid person to give a gospel track than to not open their mouth at all for Christ. Yeah. Philippians 1.18 says, What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and therein do I rejoice, yea, I will rejoice. Here people were preaching Christ out of a terrible motivation, wanting to add affliction to Paul. And Paul's like, who cares? Christ is preached. 
So let's not be discouraging in, in perhaps the method of how someone would present the gospel. Um, the acquaintance, friend, coworker, relative. Develop the relationship however appropriate. I would say um, one thought that came to mind is uh, for a, a married man or any man in a working environment of not being, not necessarily developing their relationship so well with another female coworker because speaking about some of these spiritual issues can lead to maybe an emotional dependence or something like that. Just a caution to be aware of and vice versa for female to male. Um, so however the relationship exists, develop it appropriately. Um, I've witnessed the female coworkers and, and none of that has happened. So I'm just saying that it's something to keep in mind. A thing that I don't do enough of is pray and pray and pray for opportunities. Be seeking for opportunities. Make a list. Actively, you know, make a list of a few people and pray for them. Ask God, you know, God, please just make an opportunity. Create a divine appointment where I can share the gospel with them. Show acts of kindness. Invite them to church, Bible study, dinner, or a barbecue. We heard Sarah's testimony. She was invited to dodgeball, and she got acquainted with some people, and, and from there, um, God used those people. You know, make the effort to, to go out to lunch. I work, um, whatever. Work seems to get long, and I don't like to take a lunch break all that often, and I'll work through my lunch, and I recognize, you know what, Tim, this is a time where you could just sit down away from work and have a one-on-one -on -one or group discussion with some of your coworkers. Um, why so eager to get home so fast? Play sports with them. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> I was gonna say, I was gonna say, because Michelle gets home like probably an hour and a half later than me. She does. <laughs> she does, okay? Man. I guess, where words are many, sin is not absent. <laughs> All right. Write them a letter. I, I wanted to witness to a, a professor of mine in school, and we just never seemed to be able to sit down and have a good talk because of whatever was going on. And so I took the time to write him a letter. Or use a gospel track. Um, this is, okay. Okay, I'm, I'm going to maybe just rush through a little bit of this because I want some discussion maybe and some questions and answers. So why we don't evangelize? The fear of man. And I know this is, this is much easier said than done, but are we more concerned with what man thinks of us, which is not necessarily true, or what God thinks of us, which is true? As a believer, you are immensely loved. You're created in God's image. You are co-heirs with Christ. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. That's what's true of you. And wouldn't we be more concerned about what God thinks of us than man? Again, I know it's easier said than done, but let those truths fill our minds rather than the lies of what man may or may not be thinking. Fear of the unknown. Will I lose a friend? Will I lose a job? Um, what if I mess up evangelizing and they get angry at me and they get more turned off to the gospel? Just a, just a couple verses. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. If you're so concerned about losing that friend, what kind of friend are you if you wouldn't share the gospel with them? Maybe you will lose a friend. Maybe they get turned off and they get really upset with you. But maybe they do come to Christ and 
because of that, how much more awesome would that friendship be? Matthew 6, 28-33. Just to summarize, God will take care of you. What if you lose your job? I know, again, that's much easier said than done. But um, do we not trust that God will take care of us? 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. God is doing the saving, not us. And, if, and I would say better to mess up trying than not try at all. And even on top of that, I would say, how do you know it was a mess up to begin with? Just because they reacted angrily. God can use that. Fear of making things uncomfortable. Um, I would just say, compare the consequences of sacrificing your comfort with the consequences of someone burning in hell for eternity. I don't say it glibly. I mean, just think about that. Think about the ramifications of your disobedience to the Spirit's leading. Fear of persecution. Now, some maybe have been persecuted in this, in this room. I don't know, but probably the next generation up has endured some back in the old country. Um, but in this country, we're really not persecuted. Uh, my, my persecution that I've endured, I've been laughed at. I made the situation uncomfortable. Um, someone swore at me. Uh, I was talking to a lady on a plane, and about an hour into the flight, she's like, you know what, this conversation is over. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I didn't, like, she was ticked off, obviously. But I said, you know what? I don't share this from any like conceited point of view. I share it because I care about you. I share it because you're a human being, and this is the, the truth. And yeah, I just left it at that. That, that I wasn't sharing it. I, sh- I shared it because I, I cared for her, even though I didn't know her. And then I had to sit next to her for the next three hours. <laughs> <laughs> so that was neat. A fear of inability. What if you can't answer their tough questions? For me, especially being this rational kind of guy, I'm like, man, what if I can't prove the hypostatic union of Christ or something like that? Um, well, this is one thing, is that Second um, Timothy 2.15 says, Study to shew thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word. First Peter 3.15 says, to Be ready to give an answer for the reason of the hope that you have. We need to be very well acquainted with the Word, and we need to be reading the Word, and memorizing the Word, and meditating on the Word, and familiar with philosophical arguments, and theological arguments, and all sorts of things. However, never let the fear of not being able to answer a question inhibit you, because it's a great opportunity to say, you know, that's a really good question. I don't know how to answer that, but let me get back to you. And you have a whole other opportunity to witness them again. So, after doing a little bit of research. Or maybe you think that you've not been the best example of a Christ-like life. And again, this is awesome because we should be living as Christ lived. We should be living that Christ-like life. But if we have not, again, that's a great opportunity to show, show some humility, admit your faults, ask for forgiveness, and by that we recognize God's standard of, of, of his law. We admit that what I did to you was wrong and sinful, but here's an example of forgiveness and or. I don't know if they'll forgive you or not, but you can interject the concept of God's forgiveness and grace too. So whether we you know, know the question or not, whether we we're being the best example or not, um, that can be used. And so I just pray that our compassion for the lost 
And God's promises that we can find in his word would just swallow our fears. We'll skip this. So just some key points to keep in mind. Pray for opportunities. Find some common ground to relate to the person. Don't judge the person. You should never say, like, you're guilty, homos are going to hell, or all sinners like you, or your skirt's too short, or whatever it is. You're not pointing fingers. That doesn't really help anybody. We need to be sensitively exposing them to the law. And by the questions that we ask and the scriptures that we use, they need to come to the conclusion that, yeah, I'm guilty. Don't use churchy terms. We need to be... um, There's a forum on this, I guess, coming up, right? Yeah, so this should be good. We need to learn how to speak the Bible to those who are not familiar with Bible language. Don't get preachy or forceful. Listen to them. You know, a lot of the people that I've talked to have pretty profane mouths and, and are blaspheming God when I talk to them, and, and especially that skateboarder kid, you know, just whatever. You can imagine the profanity that kids use. Um, but we need to listen to them. They're sinners, and what else do we expect to come from their hearts? Yeah, I said this. Now, one thing, don't share your traditions, church practices, or what you do or don't do. And what I mean by this is that what we do or don't do, the standard by which we live, can be an on-ramp in sharing the gospel, but it's not the focus. Does that make sense? Okay, that's what I mean by that. It's not your responsibility to convince a person. Only God can change a person's heart. And this is another one that, that I really appreciate, is we're accountable to God for being a faithful witness, not a successful one. Because we have no clue how God might use that later down the road or how many lives that person whom God eventually does touch can change. So some fringe benefits. Stepping out of our comfort zone always results in a growing experience. To study the scripture, it's an amazing thing to see someone accept Christ. And this is another thing, is that when we focus on seeking opportunities, when we're focused on doing God's work, a lot of the time temptations um, lose their luster. So we'll end with that verse and just open it up for questions, answers, uh, testimonies, whatever. Thank you. Oh, yeah, sorry. I, 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 um, I don't have handouts on me, but uh, I guess it's not the most efficient way. If you give me your email address, I can email it to you, or I guess you can get an MP3 or something. I have a lot of what I said in my presentation under the notes, so it's not just the, the little bullets. Um, so I guess I can provide that if you want that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you talked about two aspects. One is proud, one is humble, obviously. Uh, that concept of uh, witnessing to atheists, can you uh, expand on, on that? Or, or well, the, the cool thing, I think one of the... One that professes to be. Yeah, one of the best arguments... Not the best arguments. One argument that I like to use to prove the existence of God is the concept of morality. I mean, why is it that... I mean, I sort of joke around, like, what if I slap the person? And they say, hey, don't do that to me, that's wrong. I'm like, what are you talking about? What's wrong or right? I feel right, it makes me feel good to do this, and therefore I'm going to do it. What's, on what objective basis do you have to judge me or to condemn me for, for doing a wrong act? Well, I don't know, I like... It's a culture we grew up in. Well, I'm not from this culture. I'm from another country. The idea is that we, we, 
implicitly people adhere to an objective morality. And the only way that you can have that is if there is an infinite reference point, or rather an objective transcendent moral law giver, namely God. Um, but you don't even need to go into those specifics, because even with the atheist, they'll say like, oh, I don't believe all that, I don't, I don't believe in God. And you say, well, okay, what if the God did exist, and what if this was his law? And just continue to go that route, because the Holy Spirit will confirm that in their minds, whether or not, or in their hearts, whether or not they, they seem to acknowledge it or not. Because that's what's true. That's how I would answer that. something that's helped me a lot to witness, and I find great joy in it, um, is simply to ask God. Um, that's one big thing, the inability, what do I say? At, at all the reasons why, like, I think that's the biggest one for me, is how on earth do I bring this up to this person? Or I feel so weak, I mean, really do, and I just, one thing I do is I just admit it to God sometimes, I feel really weak, and I don't know what to say. Absolutely. And, just ask him. Ask him right then. Ask him. Tell him I feel weak, but just ask him to help you. And if you don't have strength, he can give the strength. Yeah, I agree. I'm not often not eager to bring up deep matters of, of sin and of judgment and stuff. One advantage of having co-workers, especially if you work with them for a long time, is they know you. They know your character. They know... What, how you think and so forth and what I have experienced in the, my last few years is I sort of became the more senior uh, co-worker co co there and um, anytime a topic was brought up uh, there's a power in cubicle farms and that is you can hear everything what everyone else is saying <laughs> and so when someone comes to my cubicle and asks me a question about that you know what do you think about this just broke out in the news mm -hmm. and I would tell them and I'll make sure I raise my voice a little bit. <laughs> I know everyone's listening. Right? There's no key punches going on. <laughs> and so I would, I would tell them exactly how I feel. And as, you know, as I've grown older and, and, and nearer to so-called uh, retirement, um, I think this is my last chance. And so I'm not afraid to say what I think. And the concept that I think we all need to, to, to remember is we, when we're in camp, when we're in church, we think this is normal life. We can, we can approach each other and speak spiritual talk because it's normal to us. When we mm -hmm. go to our workplaces, it's not normal. Yeah. Like, they are normal, we are abnormal, we think ourselves, we're not normal. So we try to, to play to their normal tune. I think we need to think we are the ones that sees that see the world the right side up, and they see the world upside down. And we need to act normal. So when we respond to simple everyday things, news reports, this happened here, that happened there, give them as the truth as it is, without condemning, without <coughs> judging, but this is what I think of this situation. And I found it to be very effective. Can I um, sort of, in my mind, instead of saying acting normal, acting consistent with what we believe, yes. we might have a tendency to, like, all right, I'm, I'm going to be cool now, I'm going to work, or I'm in school, like, none of this Jesus stuff, or things like that. So I would say that's acting consistent with, with who we really are. Um, Vincent. 
Uh, just wondering your thoughts on witnessing to those who are already uh, have an allegiance to another religion, either a cult, there's Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism. Brother um, Lucas Ardelli and I had an encounter with uh, these four Muslims from Algeria, and I spent probably two, three hours just trying to get them to acknowledge that the Bible and the Quran were incompatible. Yeah. And they wouldn't. They refused. They tried to say, well, it's all just different terms, and there's not actually contradictions. Just wondering what your thoughts on that are. Repeat the first question again. So, uh, how do we, any how strategies or effective ways okay. of witnessing to those of other religions? And More faiths? often than not, um, especially with those, those cults, which are very closely linked with Christianity, like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism, what they do with Jesus Christ is usually the fundamental issue. Is Jesus God? Not a God, but is he the God? Um, and it's, I don't know, for me especially, it's difficult. Because I would say, like, yeah, like, I would probably explain maybe how the Quran and the Bible are not incompatible. And um, I don't know, it's just, it depends on the situation of situation. But just be continually praying that God, please just, like, bring something up. Or, or just, like, change the conversation so I can bring it back onto, and I would say back onto the idea of, Morality of, of. Actually, another concept. I would say that most all religions have to do with man doing good things and achieving their their um, eternal whatever it is, nirvana for the Buddhist or heaven for the for the Muslim, or, or heaven for a lot of them, or nothing for the atheist, I guess. But. Uh, and so, more often than not, it has to do with them achieving, them working their way. And uh, when, when you maybe question, like, well, how do you know you're going to be good enough? Or are you really that good and uphold God's law? It might put in perspective, like, wow, I guess, I guess I think I'm only good because I'm comparing myself to other people. And when I compare myself, thought, word, and deed, to an absolute moral standard, I do fall pretty far short. Um, but I don't know. Witnessing is tricky sometimes, and especially if someone likes to stay in the realm of these of these intellectual battles. It's hard to get out of it. I just had one, uh, I guess, sort of comment. Uh, I guess for myself, I, I'm very personable, so I thought evangelizing is pretty easy to do. But then I thought, okay, God, bring them to me, and then I'll talk to them. And, uh, you know, as we do with a lot of things in our life, you know, oh, I want to work for the church, but they got to come ask me, and then I'll gladly do it. Um, so that's one thing I really had a difficulty with. And my wife and I, one example is we would cross the border a lot. And nowadays in Detroit, you see all kinds of homeless people. And we'd always see a man under the bridge. And every time we would drive by, we'd be like, hey, there's a man under the bridge. You know, one of these days, we got to stop and give him food or something. Mm -hmm. And it went by for about six months. And one day, we were talking with someone, and we, we thought to ourselves, my goodness, God's given us an amazing opportunity. We're praying God reveal to us how we can work in someone's life. And it was the man under the bridge. And we're like, OK, well, what happens? He might kill the kids, or what's going to, you know, I don't know. Like, OK, we got to do this, you know, the homeless man, you know. So the day we decided, you know, we got some package together for him, put some pamphlets in there, and we drove by, and he wasn't there anymore. And we were so convicted in our hearts, you know, as even uh, as the men were walking with Christ after Christ left, it was that feeling like you had the chance, and you didn't do it. And I think we really need to open our eyes 
um, to be used and to look everywhere. I mean, because if our minds are focused somewhere else instead of that, then we've lost the whole focus of it. If it's, oh, I got to go pay the bills, I got to go to the store instead yeah. of, okay, this is what I got to do, but I got to try and be a witness and evangelize for Christ while I'm doing this work. I think that's where we got to take ourselves out of the picture and Christ in the picture. Yeah, we have busy lives, and I, for sure, I want to get done with work as soon as possible. And I seem to dichotomize my work life with the rest of my life, which is not appropriate at all. I need to be sensitive to those times during work where God would want me to evangelize. Anyone else? I had a chance once with uh, some uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. And I don't know how that ever came into my hands, but I ended up having a, a copy of the Jehovah's Witnesses translation of the Bible. And, uh, I, and knowing that they were going to be coming to the house, um, I looked up the verses that talk about being born again. And I said, you know, I'd like to share with some things, because they, they have sort of like a memorized program. And I said, I'd like to share with you something from your own scriptures. And it talked about being born again. And it was, it was interesting. We ended up not agreeing. Obviously, but uh, at least you know, there was a chance to be able to expose them to, to what their own scriptures say. Yeah, I think it's extremely difficult, especially for those yeah. that are closely linked with Christianity. It's like, yeah, we're brothers. Like, there's this kid who, who denied the deity of Christ, and like, hey, we're brothers in Christ. I'm like, how, my Christ is God, your Christ is man. How are we brothers in Christ? And he didn't seem to see the, like, the logical disconnect of that. Um, but it's difficult. Uh, one kind of thing is I've purchased uh, material in Christian bookstores that, that summarize at least the fundamental differences between Christianity and 10, 10 key points between Christianity, Christ as the center, and all the other religions and cults. Mm -hmm. And it's a, also a good, good tool. Uh, so as, for instance, always a re quick reminder, if, if, if you happen to have the opportunity to talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, you have a, at least a glance, you know, like a key difference so you can be using that as, as God's leading of, of sure. how to address and how to, to talk to you. Yeah. Um, if I have one more Not to add to it, but James 2 says, uh, you know, someone comes to you needy, and you say, you know, go, be warm, clothed, and well-fed. 
and do nothing about it. Um, that's not living out our faith, and I don't mean to add to that, but, but um, what, what kind of faith are we professing if, if, if it doesn't result in action? That faith is, is pretty much dead. Um, uh, yes, there's just a little story from back from Europe. There was a, a young brother was uh, 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 has his little apartment above a liquor store. Now liquor stores are pretty different in Europe than, than here, and there were all kind of loud noise and uh, all kind of bad things. And so, contrary to that, the brother started to sing a lot and they practiced that. So, some of his family asked him, that, "Aren't you ashamed?" to do that there, said, why should I be ashamed? I'm doing the right thing, I'm praising God, and they should be ashamed. Sure. One thing uh, that Vince and I have learned when we're witnessing to other people is that one of us needs to have prayer coverage. When one person is witnessing to somebody, one, the other person needs to be in constant prayer, praying for that person's heart to be broken or to be opened up and praying against uh, protection mm -hmm. against the other brother or sister that's witnessing as well. We put opportunities to go downtown and witness, and we always have a couple of us to go across the street and do prayer coverage while we're witnessing. Yeah, prayer is so important, and I myself don't <coughs> take advantage of it. Oh, just really quick. Um, in our Zion's Harp, if you look at song, or the songs 111, 112, and 113, these are sweet songs, so just when you get a chance, check those out. You know, one of the main benefits also of evangelizing is you becoming a better Christian because it convicts you of your own sin. You delve more into the Word. You see yeah. your own mis misgivings, your own shortcomings. Yeah. And so if there is nothing else, it makes you a much better Christian. And you grow more and get more sanctified as you witness to others. Just a quick question. What are some of the arguments against tracts? Like, what, what, why do they think it's bad? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I've, uh, um, well, I, actually, I would say because maybe someone's been exposed to only really poorly written tracks. I have a couple up here if you want to look at them. Um, but, but, uh, because some, no, some tracks are really quite stupid because they, they do put the, the prosperity gospel in them. And so someone's exposure is only to that. They're like, forget that. But I don't know. Yeah, but my, my point to that is, is there are some evangelists out there that, that are quite foolish and ridiculous as well. That doesn't mean we stop evangelizing. So yeah. I just want to know, is it a, a waste of time? Is it, is it a waste of money? Is it, are they not effective? Are there statistics on that? One thing I don't like about a lot of tracts is they put the sinner's prayer on there and, you know, just read this and you say, Okay, but is that? Yeah. But God's word will not return unto him void, right? So. Well, Vic Schlatter shared with me yesterday. His son Mike, you know, I, I've never met him, but I've heard some stories about him. But either way, he's <laughs> handed out probably half a million tracks. So even if he's working on one two percent reach people, you know, that's the law of multiplication. He's going to reap that reward in heaven. I've yeah. heard also the argument against it is that it's formula, like a five-step process, rather than an um, actual change in your heart and things like that. I read a book that's kind of against tracks, so or that idea, or all these books that are out saying here's five ways to lead you to 
If you notice, I mentioned Ray Comfort's name a, a couple times, and these tracks are from his website, and you're more than welcome to take one or look at it. I think he's pretty right on because he employs this principle of preaching the law and then grace, and doesn't really compromise. In the, in the website, the Way of the Master? I think, uh, Wave, yeah, sorry, the Way of the Master or Living Waters. It shows uh, really good examples of I'll let you check out one of these and, and see if you get that, that feeling, but I agree that some of them are misguiding. Um, I would say that better to talk to the person, but again, it's for that person who, who is timid or not timid. You know, I would say, again, better to hand out God's written word, whether in track or a little Bible or something, than to not do it at all. You can, you can go and speak to somebody in person, and if, you, if you're not prepared, and if you have not studied the word, you're going to... You, you could do a similar damage, so let's not, you know, the, the, the principle That's is another thing, yeah. make sure that, that if you're going to give something that is based on God's word, and if you're going to speak to someone, you know study the word, you know, understand the, the principle before you talk. That's, yeah. That's the if we're witnessing, if we're ambassadors for Christ, we're representing him, we need to know the truth that he was communicating. Um, 
Yeah, Danielle and I actually were in, in England and we got a chance to, to go to, had a really amazing opportunity to go to um, an apologetics summer school there. And um, with Rabbi Zacharias Ministries. And when we took a class on conversational apologetics, which was really cool, and one of the, I think one of the big things just to add is um, this listening to idea is really important. I think there's almost a counseling technique in a sense of really trying to identify, you know, asking questions or really try to identify where a person's coming from. Yeah. I think it's really, really important because it's easy to just kind of, even with the framework in mind and even with trying to use the law, it's easy just to kind of blindly say things and the person misses it totally. Because you're not, and I even do this yeah, I'm yeah. Thank with my you. wife. Like, I have no idea what the person's talking about. I'm dense, you know, but it's like, are you listening to what they're saying and can you, and that takes a lot of practice and I think that takes equipping. Not only knowing how to talk to people and really understand what's going on in their minds, but then when they have questions, you know, about maybe does God exist, about what do I do with, with suffering, you know, how can I God make all this evil in the world? You know, how do you answer those things? Have we thought through some of those things? First Peter talks about being ready, and yeah. it's not just being ready to say, yeah, I'm, uh, your Christian. testimony is very, very important. You know, your personal experience, but I think also um, there's a lot of equipping that needs to be done in my own life as far as, you know, is this a priority, really? And do I know how to talk to these people? Do I know what's currently going on around us, you know? And, and, and what is the current thought, the current trends of the day? What are, what's, what do people think truth is, you know? Yeah, absolutely. We need to be, oh, yeah. We're five after. Choir. No more, no. One more. Yes, I just like to say that we put together a so-called track, and uh, uh, our big question is that, uh, uh, do you belong to the kingdom of God? And then the requirement of the kingdom of God, according to Jesus, if you love me, you keep my commandments. If you don't uh, keep my sayings, you don't love me. Yeah. So that's like the whole gospel. Uh, and that's that's the difference, I would say. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for your participation, <laughs> comments. And do you want